This is People Every Day. Coming up. It is good for people who just want a better society, who want a better community. That's what this is about. The roller coaster of emotions surrounding Derek Chauvin's conviction for the murder of George Floyd. Plus, Sheila E. remembers Prince five years after his death. He was just incredible. It's April 21st. This is People Every Day, and it's me, Janine Rubenstein, here this Wednesday. Say his name! George Floyd! Say his name! George Floyd! It's less than 24 hours after the verdict came down in the Derek Chauvin trial, where a jury found the former Minneapolis police officer guilty on all three charges for the murder of George Floyd. For so many, the verdict came as a huge relief. That was the case for people who gathered outside of the Minneapolis courthouse. There was so much just anxiety and and so much just pressure from what I felt like could be a, a powder keg type situation. And, and hopefully that is just relieved now. I'm overwhelmed. I'm grateful. I'm relieved. So I'm, I feel grounded. I can feel my feet on the concrete. I'm super grateful that this is the verdict and that we can now move to the next case. This is not only good for me and this community, it's good for my son, it's good for people who look like me, it is good for people who just want a better society, who want a better community. That's what this is about. And all eyes turned to George Floyd's family, who shared their own bittersweet sentiments. I'm going to miss him, but now I know he's in history. What a day to be a Floyd, man. Wow. Wow. But President Biden made a great point in his statement saying, quote, for so many, it feels like it took all of that for the judicial system to deliver just basic accountability. I have to admit, I don't know how I feel, given the prevalence of police violence in this country that we know is largely targeted at black and brown Americans. As the verdict was coming down, Micaiah Bryant, a teenage girl in Columbus, Ohio, was killed by police during an altercation she was having in front of her home. Different circumstances, for sure, but the same outcome. So if I can liken how I feel about yesterday's news to anything, it's like that scene in a show where someone's sitting at their desk and just finished a big pile of paperwork. They lean back and then their boss walks in and drops an even bigger stack right in front of them. The work continues because so many Americans still live in fear. Just listen to what Joel Anderson, who hosts the podcast Slow Burn and recently penned the op-ed This Isn't Justice for Slate, had to say about his own police interactions. You know, I think I'd estimated a few years ago that I'd been pulled over by police you know, maybe 40 to 50 times, you know, since I've since I've started driving and a lot of people didn't believe me at first. I, I was like, no, I get stopped about on average a year, every year, I mean, once a year, maybe two times a year. And I never you know, it never occurred to me that my life was on the line up until recently. I just thought that this was an immutable fact of life that I'm going to get stopped for whatever reason. Part of it, I was like, maybe I am a heavy footed driver. You know, maybe I'm not as good of a driver as I thought I was. And it only started to dawn on me within the last decade. I was like, oh, no, this is a part and practice of, you know, racist police policing in this country that like I'm just more likely to get pulled over than um, your average white motorist. And so, yeah, I, um, now I'm like I'm a, I'm a, I feel very fortunate that I got through that without any real trouble. I've never, you know, been arrested, never been taken to jail. And I'm really fortunate. Like, I just got lucky. 
And I wrote in People last year about seeing fear grip my brother when we were pulled over by police just outside of Minneapolis a week before George Floyd's killing. We were on a family RV trip and stopped outside of Prince's Paisley Park estate to take pictures. For some reason, someone called the police. And despite having done nothing wrong, my brother was scared. He just froze and stuck his hands straight up in the air. Having fear like that is not freedom. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Nina Simone. I'll tell you what freedom is to me. No fear. I mean, really, no fear. If I, if I could have that half of my life, no fear. So we're going to start off by digging deep into this topic today with the help of some experts. Later in the show, I catch up with legendary musician Sheila E. as she remembers her dear friend and collaborator Prince on this, the fifth anniversary of his death. So definitely stay tuned for that. But right now, I'm here with DeRay McKesson, known for his hard work as a young American civil rights activist and author and host of the social justice podcast, Pod Save the People with DeRay. Thank you so much for being on today. I know you're getting inundated. It's good to be here. You know, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, for sure. So where were you when you heard the verdict and, and what was your initial, initial feelings? I was actually on an interview. I was uh, I was on L.A. radio and then they broke away and were like, mm. so we listened in real time live. That's where I was uh, when I found this verdict. And before the verdict came out, though, it was clear that like no one verdict changes the demand, right? Like we deserve yeah. something better than this. And one verdict doesn't shape that. Yeah. I, I you know, I was personally torn because I, I just remember being in New York when um, the verdict in the Trayvon Martin case came down and that just sinking feeling that I had. And that was, I guess, one of my first experiences of, you know, just being face to face with, oh my goodness, they, you know, they don't care. <laughs> and this was a different feeling. It was, you know, a, a good feeling, but not all the way, right? Like, like, talk to me a little bit about that, um, that, that we're seeing in social media right now of like, was justice served? Can we use that word justice in the, in the, in the wave that we're in right now? So we think about the difference between justice and accountability, that accountability is what happens after the trauma. Justice is the idea that there shouldn't be trauma in the first place. So, so at best, this is accountability, but you know, in some ways, um, this might lead people to believe this is victory. They're like, oh, we did it. And you're like, let's be clear. Let's zoom out, look at the numbers. In 2020, the police killed more people than every year of data we have, except for 2018. In 2021, the police have already killed 320 people. You just know one case, which is Dante. Um, the police, the black people are actually more afraid of being killed by police than being victims of community violence, right? So like, Every indicator we look at that tracks the outcome says that the police are actually unchanged in this moment. Like there's not a, so we are winning the PR war for sure. We are not winning the battle. Like we, we aren't winning the overall war. And so, as you say, shortly after the verdict came down, there was the news of Micaiah Bryant, a teenager who was shot and killed by police outside her home on Tuesday. This is the same day um, of, of the Derek Chauvin verdict. Um, and she was involved in an altercation and reportedly defending herself when she was killed by police. So so what do you say to those who are like, but but that situation is different? Uh, have you ever worked in a school? Any chance? Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. what, what did you do? I was helping set. I was an admin, so I was helping set up a, a new charter school so in the Bay Area. Know, could you imagine if every time kids got in a fight, they got killed? We there wouldn't be a school, right? <laughs> so like, 
that part of it when I used to teach sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn, you knew it was like sometimes things just got out of control and we as adults had to figure out a way to respond that didn't make it worse, right? And it would be, you know, it was some fights. You're like, oh my God. Oh Lord. You're like, like, oh my God, they about to kill each other. The thing. Yeah. But, but at no point where you were like, let me kill him, right? Like that wasn't even like a, you were like, there is a way that we're going to get out of this, right? So when you think about even Micaiah, it's like, yeah, something, there was conflict. Most adults would figure out how to intervene in that conflict, yeah. stop the fight, stop all the drama, and everybody lives. You know that we live in communities where that's, that has happened time and time again. Where For sure. It's hot. And all of a sudden you're like, something, something happened, somebody make a call, somebody, and it's over, right? Yeah. So we, our own lives have shown us that there's another way. Like you don't actually need to dream it up. We've already lived another way. Yeah. And so just on that point, what is your take on the the conversation that is growing louder and louder around defunding versus reforming policing in America? It, it's very heated, but uh, it, it's ongoing. Yeah. So I think that what's true is that there's no one strategy that gets us to zero, Right. So there's no way to move the money away from policing in a way that's meaningful, uh, that doesn't go through the police union contract, that we'll have to do that, that that's like the path there. Uh, So, you know, we got to do that. We also have responsibility to real people's lives today, right? So we should, you know, in solitary confinement. Is the end of solitary confinement the end of incarceration? No. But does that make the end of solitary confinement a bad thing? No, right? We should change use of force policies today. That'll save people's lives today. We have a responsibility to people today as we have a responsibility to transform the entire system. So I think that we actually lose when the strategies get put in opposition to each other because Mm. people are making you choose between ending solitary confinement today or getting rid of the prison. It's a false choice. Part of the strategy is harm reduction, which is short term, but it is not short term when you think about like people's lives. Like that's a pretty big deal, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we think about like the transformational change. Defund won't get us there alone. Like moving the money is just not enough uh, because people will still want a response to what people consider violence. Uh, so we got it. Like money alone won't be the thing. And frankly, we just we haven't built the alternatives to the police yet at scale where we could actually move away single-handedly in this moment, right? For sure. And so what would you say are some areas, you know, districts, whatever it is that you have seen are are making the right steps or doing the right things? I think the Maryland legislators are probably the most, they were the most like unswayed by the police, right? The laws that passed are aggressive. It's real change. The use of force stuff is a little not, not there, but everything else is great. Police were really amped and the legislators were like, okay, we hear you and no, right? And we need more people like the Maryland folks who are like, we get it, we heard you, come to the hearing, okay, and we're still doing this, right? Senator Harris in Nevada, she's a G, right? She she's pushing <laughs> forward uh, a use of force package in a hard place and like a G, you know? You get these people around the country who are just like unafraid to be the people in the room against the police. Uh, in pro-community, and we need more of those people. But, you know, you think about, there are like 20 states, 30 states that have criminalized protests, you know, like, yeah, 
I worry that people are like victory. For sure. And then and then lastly, I want to know about um, video and what we are seeing um, more and more of. We get these body cam footage. We're getting it faster than ever, it seems, these days um, from the from the police. We there there was a thinking, I think, previously that this would help, that this would be a deterrent um, for some of these actions. Has that thinking gone away? And, And what do you have to say about just having to watch these things over and over and over again? In the aggregate, the studies on body cameras are mixed, but the largest studies essentially lead to the same conclusion. They say that body cameras might actually change police officer attitudes and community attitudes. Like people sort of feel safer if there are cameras, right? Police, uh, when we when we make a survey, they are like more hospitable to community. Uh, but you know, like I know, and the research says that it doesn't change their behaviors. How how do you protect yourself and just living in the space and doing the work? Um, being having, I couldn't watch most of the trial. I had to continue to look away because they were just showing what happened to George Floyd over and over and over again. And I know for someone like you who just is living in this, it is an inundation. So how do you, how do you deal? I don't sit in it anymore. If anything, I sit in the possibility. So like every day I wake up being like, how do we, what's the, what is the other thing we can do? How do we bring more people in the fold so we can sort of tear apart the power of police unions or do that? Like that is sort of what I do now in a way that is just different than what I did three or four years ago. Uh, I spend most of my time trying to figure out the structural piece of this. And that is like what keeps me moving. I love that. Thank you so, so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you. Good to be here. Talk to you later. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. with me now is athlete turned social activist Renee Montgomery. She played 11 years in the WNBA and won two championships with the Minnesota Lynx before walking away and sitting out the 2020 basketball season to bring attention to and focus on social justice. She's here with me now to talk about that decision and her thoughts on the Derek Chauvin verdict. Hi, Renee. Hello there. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for making the time. Problem. Problem. So, how are you feeling today? Let's just go right to the moment. Um, it's on the heels of learning that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all charges. Is that any relief for you? It's a relief in a sense of accountability. You know, we we all know what we saw with our eyes. And so we wanted it to have that accountability factor that we know what we saw was not right. And it needs to be shown that it wasn't right. So when you get three guilty charges, it shows the accountability. And I know that a lot of people have heavy hearts, you know, right now because there's the justice, you know, there's the justice of it all. And, and we're happy to receive justice in this case. But now we want to see justice consistently. I think that's the sentiment that 
We want accountability. We want cops to be in the moment, but also understand that these are human lives. And these are people that have families, friends that are, are getting removed from those lives. And so you always have to be happy with progress. And yesterday was progress. For sure. Uh, so, so take me back to 2020. What events would you say immediately led to you wanting to just sit out, take a step back from basketball that year? Yeah, well, you know, I talked about it a lot. You know, I said George Floyd's name a lot. I said Breonna Taylor at that time. Dante Wright was alive, so I wasn't saying his name, but I'll say it right now. Um, there were a lot of names that I was saying, and people couldn't understand how I would want to remove myself from being a professional athlete to focus on being a voice and to to focus on making sure that people feel heard. But when you get a win like yesterday, to me, it just it, it feels good to see that there is progress being made. But you know, in 2020, I I didn't know exactly how to go about creating change. But I just knew that like, I wanted to, to add my moment to the momentum and I wanted to just be a part of the movement. Did you feel, you said like a lot of people had opinions about it, um, but did you get that support from uh, the athletic community as well? People who were kind of cheering you on and what you did? More than I could have imagined. And, and that's to me, when people talk about, they always ask me, aren't you tired? We see you everywhere. We see you doing different things. I'm not tired. I feel like there's so much to do. And I feel like, People give me fuel. You know, when people tell me, I, I get messages that I tell my family all the time. I'm like, yeah, that message was kind of crazy because it's my peers. And just imagine if your peers just start talking to you a certain way, like you inspire me and, and different things of that mm. nature. It's, it's different because I'm used to them just being my homies and now they, they talk to me a little different. And so for me, that's my fuel. And that's why I don't get tired. And that's why yesterday was important. It was a landmark in, in our history. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk about um, just uh, the success that you have had in your work. Take me into that those first steps after saying, OK, I'm not putting the jersey on tomorrow. Now, what do I do? Yeah. So the only thing that I knew just coming out of sports was that I know I can work hard. I can connect with people and I can try to bring about positive vibes. And so that's the first thing I did. The first thing um, once I opted out the very next day, I threw a Juneteenth pop up block party. And that was just the first celebrate and educate people on what is Juneteenth. And because if I call the block party a Juneteenth pop-up block party, people are like, well, what's Juneteenth? Yeah, get into it. It's a holiday. We should celebrate it. We're educated people. They don't even know it. We're feeding them food, drinks, but we're also talking about the issue at hand and that there's things going on we don't like and how do we change that? So it was, it was a whole vibe. And that's what I want everything that I do to be educational, but a whole vibe. And so how do you view your 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 impact as a black woman in the movement? I mean, we we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, it's across the board, the the attacks on black bodies, women and men. Um, but a lot is, you know, made of, of just what black men are up against and 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 the fight that they have. Um, but but how do you feel as a black woman in the movement? You know, I feel powerful as a black woman in this movement. And the reason I say that is because. People understand that now is the time. You know, if this was three years ago, I don't think that my voice would have been as received as it was. But we're coming off of Kamala Harris now being in the White House. So people see what women can do. People see the places women are going. I mean, I'm in Atlanta, so I see all kinds of powerful women. Stacey Abrams, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. These are people in my city that I see. So for me, I felt powerful. I felt like there's women already doing stuff and I want to add in. 
And now you're an owner. You are a part owner, investor in, in the dream, the Atlanta team, um, as well as you have your, your Renee Montgomery Foundation. Uh, where is basketball in your life now? I'm so happy that we're still dating. You know, I still go steady with basketball. <laughs> we're never going to break up. And that's why even when I retired, you know, I told people that I'll just be I'll be loving on basketball a different way. You know, I was I was a player who gave my blood, sweat and tears on the court. But now I'll be giving my blood, sweat and tears on my time to to building up the brand. And that's the Atlanta Dream brand, the WNBA brand. It's our 25th anniversary with the WNBA. And that's a big deal because I can remember even when I first got into the league 12 years ago, a lot of people ever at after every season, it was oh, is the WNBA going to survive? Are they going to fold? What's going to happen? That was my reality for my first five years. We didn't know if we were going to have a league. And so for the 25th anniversary, I'm proud. I'm proud of that and I'm excited for it. So, you know, basketball is still right here with me and I wouldn't have it any other way. Nice. Renee, thank you so much for taking the time. This is awesome. Thank you for having me, Janine. I appreciate it. Everyone, I recently had the pleasure of catching up with iconic, award-winning musician and drummer, Sheila E. She's a woman who blazed a trail in music and did that with what many assumed was a man's instrument. And she was famously one of Prince's dearest friends and collaborators, Prince, who we lost five years ago today. Here we are discussing how she is keeping his legacy alive. Take a listen. Um, yeah, it's gotten easier um, to look at things and talk about it, but then at the drop of a hat, just like one song or one verse of something or a picture. And I'm going, ah, you know, it just, because we spent, you know, majority of our time, we met in 1977. And even though I was in and out throughout that time, I mean, it's a lot of time that we spent together, either laughing, hanging out, creating, uh, playing, recording, um, telling stories, going to the movies, whatever it may be, traveling, the world, going to Europe, whatever, just to go have lunch. I mean, you know, it's there are a lot of great memories and then there are good and bad times with those relationships. So it brings, it stirs up emotional uh, feelings, um, good and bad. And, uh, but gosh, we, we had so much time together and he's, he was just incredible. What a genius, an incredible songwriter. My favorite guitar player of all time. I loved when he played guitar. Yeah, and I just, man. You know, those are the things that I hold on to. I love that. I love that. So before we get to hear a little bit of your magic, uh, I, I have just a quick question. I've always wondered, are your, your hands and wrists insured? Because they should be. They're like a natural treasure. That's a good question. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you a secret. Okay. You see that picture behind me in the one-legged outfit, that one-legged outfit that I was yeah. known for? So it's my uh -huh. left leg that was 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 shown all the time when I came up with this idea to wear that outfit, right? And so I ended up talking to management and instead of, I don't even know what I was thinking, and they agreed. Instead of insuring my hands and my wrist, which this is my livelihood, I ensured that no one even knows, I don't even know if I've ever told this story, so this might be a first. My left leg was insured for a million dollars. <laughs> what the heck? Because <laughs> it was that gorgeous. it had to be. <laughs> oh, no. Slash is probably that gorgeous. I can't see it right now, but from, from the looks of you, nothing has changed. Uh, so. I beg to differ. <laughs> Still a Duct million dollar leg. works well. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> 
That was Sheila E. For more on her and remembering Prince, head over to people.com. And now something that's related that'll make you smile. As Sheila and I wrapped up our time together, I just did it. I politely asked if she would play a little something for me. Well, ask and ye shall receive. Sheila E. gave me a drum solo, officially the envy of my whole family. Have a good one. Talk to you guys tomorrow. 